everybody this is Phil Mama I'm Thais Drasinauer and today I am very happy I have a dear friend and a special guest Munya Akul who um, did her first feature Costa Brava Lebanon uh, during a very difficult time for the whole world uh, with the pandemic but especially for Lebanon because it was right after the the Beirut explosions, right, in 2020. And um, I'm sure she'll tell us a little bit about how that uh, came into play with, with shooting her film. Uh, but it's such a beautiful film uh, and it's so moving, so touching. And I just think that it's a, a testament of, of the power of storytelling, but not only for the people that, that hear a story, but for the people that make the story, to be able to make something so beautiful in, in such a difficult time. Uh, so um, the film premiered in, in 2021 in, in the Venice International Film Festival uh, under the Horizon category, right? And um, it's now in the festival circuit. It was Lebanon's submission for the Oscars and um, I can't wait to hear all about it. So congratulations, Munya. Uh, thank you for being here with us today. And uh, we are very excited to hear about your experience making this film. Uh, but I'm especially happy to just see your face. <laughs> Welcome. I'm so happy to catch up with you, even if, uh, uh, after so long, really. Yeah. Good to talk to a friend. Yes, always, always. Um, well, uh, Costa Brava is the story of a family uh, that escapes Beirut uh, to, to form their little paradise in the mountains, right? They're escaping pollution and, and then this landfill comes and uh, the government decides to open a landfill right next to them, right? Um, can, you, can you please tell us a little bit about, first about yourself, about, uh, how did you decide to, to be a filmmaker? Um, how, how do you become a director? Yes, I think it was something that, um, I guess it was a feeling that was inside my body, but uh, I, that I wasn't really calculating so much. I know that when I was growing up in the home I grew up in, cinema was part of our everyday life because my uh, parents loved films. And so I used to watch films that maybe kids my age wouldn't watch because they would allow me to spend some time with them, even the, if they sometimes argued on which ones I could watch and which ones I couldn't. But there was a secret shelf that I couldn't reach uh, that I wasn't allowed to watch films from that shelf. But of course, when everyone was asleep, I used to uh, uh, cheat and, and watch those films. So I think I became a cinephile thanks to them. And I think that I uh, developed empathy also thanks to them, which I guess is so important as a screenwriter to try to appreciate every character you write in, despite all their you know, complexities and flaws. I think uh, our parents and our you know, family, my sister, my parents are the people I love the most, but at the same time, um, 
a family is a place where you see people in all of their uh, truths. And so I think the screenwriter in me was born by observing the people I love the most um, have complex behavior. Uh, and I, and that's when I became, I think I developed that type of empathy that later I, I used for, for writing and, and directing. Then what happened is that when I was 17, I was too scared to study film because I grew up in a society where uh, being a filmmaker seems like a big risk to take. And everyone makes you question that when you say, well, that's what I want because I, that's what I wanted. But then I think I wasn't uh, strong enough to uh, do that then. And so I went to the second best thing for me, which was architecture, because that's what my parents were. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do something before following my dreams, then let it be something I like. So I entered this five years, uh, you know, program, the architecture school. And, and of course, I used to escape certain architecture classes to go to film classes. And those years in architecture school confirmed to me how much I wanted to be a filmmaker because on one side, I was learning a lot. On the other side, I was frustrated not to be doing what I want to be doing. And so I kind of adapt, adapted my, my way of, of experiencing those years by telling myself, okay, I know I will do film later. So how can I use architecture studies for what ultimately will be my uh, uh, film studies. Oh, that's great. Um, I I do think that the architect in you shows in your use of space and light. And, uh, I'm 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 looking forward to hearing actually about your directing a little later and how that has influenced it. Um, can you tell us how many shorts you did? before you decided to shoot your first feature? And how did you know you were ready for your first feature? Mm. I think, so when I was in architecture school, I did my first short film. Obviously I knew nothing about film. So me and another friend of mine, Cyril Aris, uh, did this short together, which was like the, this cheesy, <laughs> clumsy, uh, homage to Amélie Poulain, where we acted, did the sound, wrote with one VHS camera. So that was my first way of playing with film without knowing anything about film. In a very strange way, that short film launched a lot of things for him and I. But then later, I think when I understood who I wanted to be, I did another short and then another short. And then at Columbia University, I did more two shorts. So I think I did around six shorts. And then the short that really opened up a lot of doors inside of me was Submarine, which was my thesis short from Colombia. By this point, I had felt that the, the person I was at that moment was not present in any of the previous work that I had done. So I had this anxiety and this frustration of, I didn't do anything that I'm so proud of that represents who I am because I am the type of person that I mean sometimes I'm very in touch with my emotions other times there's an ocean between me and myself that take a lot of time to digest and so I was feeling frustrated that I couldn't find my mind in, in the lab or my current mind in, in the work I had done and so I put all of that frustration in the writing of this short film Submarine 
which uh, in many ways became a link to Costa Brava because it was a short that served as almost like a business card um, to uh, Costa Brava. It's a short that attracted certain people uh, that became part of the Costa Brava journey. And so, um, and it explored similar themes and it's also explored a certain language I'm interested in, which is how to try to put the magic that comes from our daydreams and our secret subjectivity into images, which is always much uh, uh, better done in literature, like in magical, magical realism literature than in cinema. But I, I wanted to try to challenge uh, that. And so I, I would say Submarine was what gave me the courage to venture into my first feature. But you never know if you're ready for anything. I think I was just driven by the desire to tell the story. And maybe now, a year later, I, I when I think about, I thought I was invincible, but no one is. And so, and that's how we learn. And so all of the things that I feel I failed in with Costa Brava are the things that I will attack first for my second feature. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, whenever we look back at our previous films, we, we're always thinking how we could have done something different, yeah. how we will do something next time. Uh, but um, but I do think the 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 magical realism uh, you you portrayed so beautifully in this film. Um, you co-wrote the script with uh, with Clara Roquet. Uh, who's also an amazing writer and director? Um, yes. Can you please tell us about the the the, the process of of co-writing uh, your script and um, and how many drafts did it take to write? Um, first of all, the way Clara and I came into each, each other's lives is in film school. Uh, I remember that like uh, Cyril was also in that film school, like Clara and Cyril met by trying to skip a queue at Colombia. So that's when they understood they're both Mediterranean. And that's how Clara came into my life through my friend who was from Lebanon as well. And I think the first most important thing for, for me um, when looking for a collaborator is the hum human, you know, if we're on the same, if we vibrate the same energy or if we like see life in a sim similar way somehow. And I think humanly Clara and I, I found in her something that really attracted me to her and vice versa. And then when I read her scripts, I understood on a more intellectual level why uh, her and I connected and partly because we had gone through similar things as people and those little events that start shaping you as a person, we had some of those in common. And, uh, and so that was the first moment where I understood I wanted to create something with her. And we wrote a, a short film together at Colombia then we co-wrote uh, Submarine when I went to her with the idea. And then naturally, because Submarine was a link to Costa Brava, it, it was logical for, for Clara to be the co-writer. And so the way I, uh, we did it is I went to her with kind of like a general pitch. This is the story, this and that. And then she joined in at that moment. We started, we never wrote uh, for hands writing. Like we both need silence and time alone to write. So the time we would spend together would be brainstorming and outlining 
And then I'd be like, I want to write th those scenes. And then she'd be, okay. And then I'll send them to her. She'll rewrite them. And then she would continue. And so we all, we, we each wanted time alone with the scenes. So the time together was mostly outlining and giving each other feedback. We wrote a lot of drafts. Um, we would kind of like spend time apart and then we didn't write full time for three years. We actually did other stuff in between. She was multi, you know, she did, did other projects at the same time and, and me as well. So we would try to find moments where we would isolate uh, together and write. And we, one thing we did that I thought was interesting as we were trying to find our protagonist was we wrote different drafts, each from the perspective of each character in this family until the day we went to the conclusion that we wanted it to be a multi-protagonist story because we didn't want to sacrifice certain things that we would need to sacrifice if we would commit to one character. But that was a big challenge for me because I had never made anything that wasn't about one character. I was always used in my directing to follow in a radical way one person. Mm -hmm. And so deciding to I was very stubborn about wanting the family to be the protagonist, but that was challenging for me because it was the first time and, and I, I was very attached to each of these. And so I didn't want to uh, sacrifice any of those moments with each. But I will say that Rim, the eight-year-old kid, which is played by twins in the film, was a character that I that always started the story. Uh, in, in many, I have an event that happened in my life when I was seven, that um, I feel like there's a seven-year-old uh, Munya like trapped in, inside my body because of that event that kind of like uh, kept that person there. And so I think that I really projected onto this character because she's that character that is in this age where she has no filter, where all of her emotions are out there, uh, whether it's her wonder her sense of magic her anxiety it's all out there and and so she allowed me to you know write certain things that uh, I may be more timid about uh, otherwise that's beautiful yeah um it's it's such a honest portrayal of, of family dynamics and and um I guess my next question was going to be how like how does the story come to life and where is it coming from? And I guess you kind of answered that with Rim, like she was the she, she was the gateway for the rest of the family. Was that it? Uh, yes, definitely. It's as if like we said, okay, it's a multi-protagonist, but this kid has the main, she's carrying the main mission of the film. Uh, her journey is, because, you know, I the films that I watched that really, uh, make me feel empowered are the, those where I can see some sort of transformation, even if it's so invisible. And in the case of this film, I wanted it to be about this, this girl um, breaking free somehow from the borders that has been mm. the borders of denial and maybe of privilege also that have been defined for her. And this girl saying, you know what, I want to to go into this world that I have been sheltered from. And I want to um, stop trying to be um, uh, the person who's trying to please everyone. Um, and this, that's also something that she shares with Tala, the teenager whose self of, sense of lack of self-worth leads to her being a people pleaser and who 
thanks to the garbage arriving, finds that secret space in which she can break free because at home, even if it's this, uh, so it's not like a, a paradise, it's actually for her an open air prison. Yeah. And so I tried to create for Tala through the arrival of the outside world, a space in which she can be herself and stop worrying about pleasing her father or her mother or her grandmother. Nice, yeah, that that last moment when uh, when Rim decides to go and leaves her father behind, it, it's really unexpected because of the relationship between yes. two of them, but at the same time, as you said, it's, it's, it is her way of breaking free and, free and like because of the character that you constructed, it is also inevitable in some way. Like yes. she's her own, her own person, and and yes. inside she's free, and now she's gonna go be free outside. Yes. Um, in order to make this film, you've gone through a lot of workshops and labs. Uh, um, between them, I know there's Sundance, there's the residency at the Cine Fundacion. Um, can you please tell us a little bit about these experiences and how uh, and if they were helpful for you as you were developing your film? Um, of course, some of them were extremely helpful because they allowed me to uh, stop time, stop worrying about the rest of, of things in order to focus on the development of the story. For example, the Cine Fondation residency was just six months in the beautiful home of, of the Cannes Film Festival in Paris with no mentorship or anything. It's really just time and space to focus mm -hmm. uh, in this beautiful space and with uh, beautiful filmmakers that you live with for six months. Then there's the, the whole opposite of that was the Sundance Lab, which was an intensive month in the Sundance Mount, Mountain, where you choose four scenes from the script and you workshop them. You shot list them, you direct them with actors there, or you can potentially bring an actor. I brought with, with me uh, Saleh Bakri, who plays the father, because I knew I wanted him to be the father, but we didn't really have a relationship yet, except just for mutual respect. So it was great for him to join me there and uh, for us to really live a moment together that totally confirmed he should be the father. So it was an intensive one month where every week I would shoot, direct and edit with great people there uh, a scene. And it felt so free because there were no stakes. No one will ever see those scenes. It's just me playing with film language and experimenting. And it's a feeling that I wish I had kept up until the shoot, but then on the shoot, there's money, there's a team, there's stakes, there's, there's a day you need to finish. And so somehow, I, I felt that I was more free with myself when I had no stakes. And that's the challenge for my next film, how to feel like a kid again, without worrying so much about the stakes that surround the project. And so in Sundance, it was every week we would write, direct, edit a scene. And every week there would be new mentors that would come and kind of like react without imposing anything, just react and like have chats with us. And the mentors that were there were people that have remained friends until now. And they're people that had done things that I had a lot of respect for. You know, for example, Dylan Tischner, who edited films that I love, like Phantom Thread or Boogie Nights or Magnolia or Brokeback Mountain or, you know, or, or, or actors like Ed Harris or just Elise and McKinney and Michelle Sadder, their, their, their presence and their, the way they nurtured the, the fellows there 
really gave us a space where we could create and play with film language with no stakes so that we can kind of workshop our own film before having to go out there and do it. And it was a month on a beautiful mountain away from the world. And that was um, made me aware of the importance of just taking care of yourself mentally in order to be able to create better, which became, anyway, we'll get to the shoot, which was the opposite of that. <laughs> because we shot in the middle of chaos. It was the exact opposite. And, and then there was the Torino Film Lab, which was also helpful for my producer because not only we, we the pitch award that we won, it was money that went into the production, but also it was, um, it allowed us because in the Torino Film Lab, you have like a session with uh, each member from one field. So Peter Albrechtson was our sound person that we spoke about about the script. Christian Munju was the director one. And later when we locked a co-production with Denmark and that we got money from Denmark, uh, we went back to Peter Albrechtson who ended up being the person who uh, did the mix. And he knew of the script already and he had uh, had a relationship with it already. So these are things that, uh, and so basically these different workshops each brought something and that was great for my producers and I. However, at some point it was too much for me. And I felt a little bit like, okay, I, I, I understand that this is important. This is the first feature. Every one of these uh, encounters and names and workshops help for the financing. But when you, made a lot of workshop that helped you a lot, you get to a point where you feel, well, now you need to spend time with yourself and the script. So it was, uh, you know, but at the same time, Lebanon doesn't have financement for films. So we need to do all these things in order to secure financement. So I wouldn't have done it any other way, but I hope that I don't have to do it again in that way all the time, you know? Okay, that's great. Um... So you've talked, I think you've mentioned before, you said we didn't spend three years writing. So there's a period of three years there. And then um, I don't know how long the production took, but if you would have to say from inception to completion, how long did this project take you? Um, in 2016, I finished Submarine and started traveling with it. So. I would say that when I traveled festivals with Submarine, I started thinking about the story. Um, so that was one thing. Um, I think that, honestly, I don't remember, but I would say that I, I wrote the first treatment of the film in 2017 and then applied to things with the treatment. And then once the producers came on board, on and off, it was from 2017 to 2020. Okay. In 2020, we shot, we wrapped a day before New Year, and then we premiered in September. So we wrapped in January, let's say, and we premiered in September. Okay. All right. So Maybe five years on all. Around five years. Okay. Um, so five years is a long time for any person uh, on any project, but this is what uh, film projects take. Sometimes they take 10 years or 20. Uh, sometimes they take one. Um, uh, a question that a lot of people have is during those five years you are making this project, how are you uh, living? How are you paying your bills? How are you paying rent? Um, how do you survive? So the, the thing, so 
it's five years, but of course it's on and off. Mm -hmm. So those five years include the fact that we had to push the shoot by one year because of everything that happened in Lebanon. It involves two years of on and off writing, a lab here, a lab there. And the way, I mean, for example, for Clara, she writes scripts for others. She has her own scripts as, as a director. Um, the development, for example, the Sundance Lab supported the fellows. They gave us a grant. Uh, the, every time we won a development grant, for example, the producer created a budget. So the budget involved uh, money for the writing. So every time we would win an award from development, it would go to me and Clara until we completed the writing budget. Then there's the producing, sorry, then there's a directing salary mm -hmm. and then the following up of the, you know, the post. So this is like as a director and then there's a percentage. Then outside of that, the way I'm living my life in parallel is um, through, um, sometimes working with brands. For example, I did sometimes fashion films for, for example, recently with Dior or with Elisab and Sandra Mansour. These are projects that I like because I have full creative freedom and it's a collaboration with another artist. So it's not like uh, a booklet of what I need to shoot. So I'm, it's not, it doesn't feel like a money job, but it is also. So that's a good way to kind of like exercise your creative muscles and have creative freedom, but also doing something commercial that I do that. I don't do that all the time, but that's one way. And then there's um, the other projects that I'm working on. Yes, there's commercials and things like that. And then there's teaching and then there's TV. Uh, these are other ways like working for TV, doing episodic, the other projects that I'm developing, my second feature. Uh, there's collaborations with other artists like uh, architects or fashion designers or commercials. And then there's master classes and teaching. And then there's the salary of the feature. So this, I think, are general ways uh, uh, that money could be made. <laughs> Great. Yeah, there's all, there always needs to be different projects at different stages. Um, um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the commercial, um, the commercials that you've directed? Yes. Directing commercials is is also um, a little bit of a bubble. Like, how did you get started there? Like, because I think it's the chicken and the egg with commercials, because it's like, you you have to have directed a commercial so that the, the client trusts you with their commercial. Um, can you tell yes. us a little bit about that? Of course. Um, so I, I don't do a lot of commercials, uh, but I will say, so actually it's funny because my bridge to, um, that world was through my sister <laughs> because uh, my sister uh, went to school in Lebanon uh, with a girl called Sandra Mansour. Sandra was that young person who was, I think, um, drawing all the time in school. She, she drew really well. And then ultimately later, she became a fashion designer. But what's great about Sandra is that she's the kind of person that she enters a room, she wants to be invisible. You know, she's in her jeans, her t-shirt, her uh, uh, superga, and mm -hmm. she's the opposite of her designs, which are full of magic and, and dreams and extra, you know, they're like works of art. And so Sandra became a designer and because she's friends with my sister, she designed her wedding dress. Mm -hmm. So I went with my sister to, uh, uh, you know, to Sandra while she was, you know, drawing it for her friend. 
And, and Sandra told me that she was fascinated with cinema and that she liked a couple of things I had done. One of them was a short I had done in New York, uh, Eva, and another one was Submarine, which ironically, I mean, I, Submarine fe features so much trash that it was almost hard for me to understand what drew her to it. But I understood that what drew her to it was that we both shared the fascination for uh, surrealism in literature, in art and in poetry. And that was what drove her. I saw her mood board wall and it had nothing related to fashion. It was really all the, the sources of inspiration that I had. So she told me her dream was to one day collaborate with a filmmaker and create visual images and that she had never done that. And she told me that her um, next collection was about the power of dreams and of the subconscious and it's the strength it gives us to create. And I told her that that was something that interested me as well. So her and I very naturally decided to make a film together called 11 Minutes, which was 11 Dreams. And it was the most organic creative process because I would just sit, look out the window, have an idea, write it down. I would have a dream, wake up, write it down. I would look at a painting of Magritte or a, a Breton uh, you know, text. And then so, so suddenly I wrote like 20 little dreams, sat with her, we selected 11. She designed dresses for those dreams and we just shot them and 11 minutes became a little bit like what brought me to the fashion world because it is later what other people uh, were drawn to and came to me because they had seen that. So I did fashion films for her again later. Then Elisa, who's a Lebanese designer, also internationally acclaimed a, 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 and I collaborated on two films with them, which was also really interesting because it's another vision. So it's, it's very playful as well because you're collaborating with another artist. So it's another version of you also. And then uh, with my uh, producers who represent me for uh, films for brands in France, they contacted me after they saw those works and Submarine and they said, we they're a company called Woman Ray that said that they're cinephiles who work for brands. They told me we represent film directors who sometimes want to venture into films for brands. And that's how they started representing me. And with them, we did a film for Christian Dior and then we're doing another film in Paris next month. So this was my way into the fashion world. Now commercials, I didn't do many of them, but when I, I started in Lebanon, because people who had worked with me, who also work because producers in Lebanon sometimes do both or production managers. So it was human relationships and knowing each other from the industry. A person says, you know what? I think uh, I want to trust her with this commercial because we need a commercial that's not typical commercial. But so this is how it started. So I did a few, but most of the time I said, uh, no, but because I try to look for the ones in which I can also learn and where I can meet people that I can build a relationship with for upcoming projects. So for example, when I worked in Paris on the Dior film, I wanted to work with an assistant director that I knew I wanted to work with on a film as well. So I tried to use those in a way that can serve me in my own you know, passion as well. That's that's great. That's pretty smart, and that's a great idea for this company to 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 kind of uh, be cinephiles yes. and 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 deep into the brand world. And I'm sure they have a really interesting roster of directors. Um, going back to Costa Brava, Levan, could you um, 
could you please tell us the budget of the film uh, if it's something you can share and uh, how how did the financing come together? We discussed some grants. Was there another component for the financing? My producers at Abut really worked hard <laughs> to finance this film. I owe them a lot. Um, uh, so I think the budget was a little above, to be honest, I think it's above 1.2 but a million, but I'm not sure. I have to check with Miriam. <laughs> uh, uh, so basically the financement was a very complicated financement because uh, again, we don't have big fundings uh, from Lebanon. And so we have to kind of like go and search for that money elsewhere. So it was a co-production with France. We got money from France. That money uh, allowed us to pay part of the sound uh, to hire VFX uh, uh, companies here, work with VFX companies here like Brief and Micros that were supervised by Peter York from Denmark, who was paid by the Danish grant. So we had a co-production between, uh, there was a co-production with Norway. We got money from the SOAR fund in Norway that has money for uh, you know, minority countries. It was co-production with Denmark that allowed us to hire three people from Denmark, production design, uh, sound um, mix and uh, visual effects. We had a co-production uh, with, um, uh, uh, Sweden that allowed us to pay a few things like the SFX and the uh, uh, music. Uh, we had a co-production um, with, uh, I don't know, a lot. Uh, every co-production came with certain conditions. There was one with Spain that allowed us to do the post-production, the grading and the editing in Spain. So each of these co-productions uh, allowed us to kind of create a certain part of the crew. And then there were grants, uh, like, uh, for example, DFI, Afak from the Arab world that supported us. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, so it was a complicated, ah, and there was also, sorry, an MG from MK2 and also uh, uh, equity and, and money that came from um, our US partners, for example, uh, Boo Pictures and also like participant media and uh, uh, we had also people who invested in the film. And so it was a mix of equity uh, uh, funds. Uh, the, you know, I, I, I'm not the best person to talk about this, but this is basically the complicated structure. It makes so many things and uh, it, um, uh, it made it complicated for the producers to create the financial plan, but it was the only way at a moment where even some of our money got stuck in the banks because the economic collapse and the uh, bank crisis started uh, while we were in pre-production. So the money lost its worth. So they had to scrape in more money. Wow. Yeah, um, that was gonna be my next question about your relationship with your producers. I know you, with, with Miriam Sassin, you worked before on, on El Gran Libano, I think? Yes. Or, yes, and then uh, it was your first time working with George, right? Uh, how? How did you um, decide that uh, you wanted to work with media and how did George came along and what was your experience? It sounds like they put a great plan together. Um, can you just tell us about your experience? So I, Miriam and George watched Submarine in Cannes uh, when they had a movie screening in Semaine de la Critique, a feature film called Tramontane and Submarine was screening in the Cine Fondation. So as part of the film industry from Lebanon, we got to know each, get to know each other and they watched the film and 
there was like a Lebanese party that uh, included those two films and a film film by Wissam Sharaf. So kind of like the Lebanese uh, film industry uh, supported each other during this festival. And I met with them, Miriam knew of my work from a TV show I did when I was younger, when I was just trying to learn cinema by making films. And so she knew of my work. She had liked Submarine. And so she asked me what I was working on and I told her about the feature and she told me she was interested in talking about it more through the company of Boot. And that's where our relationship started. And then um, when um, the Lebanon factor, when the factory of the director's fortnight chose Lebanon as a country. I was one of the directors who co-directed the film for the Lebanon factory and Aboud were the producers of the four short films. So I got to test our collaboration on a short film. And, we, and then later, after that collaboration was successful, uh, we decided to kind of like indirectly sign together after that. So when I went to Cannes uh, during the factory, them and I started doing meetings together uh, me trying to meet the future partners of Costa Brava. Okay. Well, that's that that worked out great because you had that that little project to, as you said, test your relationship. Yes. Um, yes. Let's talk a little bit about the cast. Your cast is wonderful. You have established actors. You have non-actors or like first-time actors. You even have one of your main actresses is actually a director, <laughs> Nadine Lavaki. Um, uh, can, you, can you please tell us what was the experience um, with working, for example, with somebody like Nadine Lavaki and how did that influence um, um, the dynamics in your actors? But I am especially interested in in the twins that that played Rim, and um, they they you know they they interpret this character that uh, we've discussed before is so full of, of of hopes and fears and also her own anxiety. Um, I I I recognize in her traits a little bit of a, of what you can call like an obsessive compulsive kind of thinking. Uh, I got one of your shorts now. You had a character that constantly had a helmet, right? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> I did, and I smiled when I saw that. Um, um, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's such a well-rounded character, and, and I really uh, um, connected with, with her depiction of, of her anxiety. And I just wanted to know how, you know, especially because it's twins playing them. So like, how did you, how did you manage to have, uh, to, to work that character with them? And also what is the process of working with twins and how do you have that uh, a continu emotional continuity, let's say, just, just tell us a little bit about it. Yes. So it was an interesting uh, cast because it mixed I had to adapt my directing of actors uh, five different in five different ways. That was not English, but you understood my point. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, for example, um, I had a, a grandmother who had never acted before. She's the mother of a friend, a wonderful woman. Uh, I had uh, Saleh Bekri, who's a known actor, in, of course, um, who. Uh, also worked a lot in theater and in films. Uh, I had Nadine Labaki, who's a director, who acts sometimes. 
I had, and who has acted a lot, obviously, and who's really used to being on set. I had a, a teenager played by Nadia Sherbil, who uh, had never done a feature film before, who was from the TV world. I had Francois, who plays Tarek, who is not an actor. He's an, also an, was an environmental activist. And, and then there was the twins, who were, were kids who had never been on set before, and who were twins playing one role. So I, I found one of my favorite things to do as a director is to work with actors because I feel like it's where some of the things that I enjoy doing the most in life, I, I am able to, because I'm a very maternal person. And so it, it felt natural to kind of like change my way of communicating to each because I understood that each of these people had different needs and, and desires also from playing their roles. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, uh, with the kids, it's often through uh, playing games and getting them to disconnect from, from the idea that they're performing and getting them to just be themselves. In fact, the twins fell in love with Saleh Bekri. And so the, what you see in their eyes is real. I just decided to sit and watch it and forget that I'm a director who's trying to create cool frames. Sometimes I was just, telling my DP, let's just keep rolling and let's just follow what they're giving us and stop worrying about our intelligent shots, you know, because what she's giving us is, is more interesting than you shouldn't trap a kid that is full of energy into a certain frame. But when you can, because the frame says something, it's good to do the effort, but other times you will lose something. And so how did I cast the, the twins? Um, the two, so, okay, so basically uh, I had a really hard time finding this kid. I wanted the kid to be a bit like the copy paste of the father. In my wildest dreams, I would find someone with blue eyes, but I told the casting directors, Abla and Sabina and, and Ayman, if the, we found an, find an amazing kid that has black eyes, it's okay, <laughs> but let's try to find, you know. And so one day they show me a video of this kid that after seeing a hundred kids, I felt completely in love because she had this wild energy. She felt like no one could, could control her. She felt so free. And, and, and so I watched this video and I said, oh my God, it's her. And she had these blue, blue, blue eyes. And I said, please bring her. I think it's her. I felt something, you know, that I rarely feel. And they said, okay, we'll bring her. But actually there's, there's a funny thing is that they're twins. There's two of them. I said, okay, well, bring both. Who knows? Maybe one of them will be great and then we'll cast one of them. And then it will be a hard way to, to say no to another. But, you know, so both of both of them came in the office. And at that moment, I, with everything that had happened in, in Lebanon, the office, yes, was full of creativity and energy, but we were all a little bit down, a little bit like low on energy. We were very triggered by sounds. Like there was this very you can feel it's an office trying to be creative, but there was a lot of trauma in it. Uh, uh, and so those two girls entered and really brought so much light into the room. They were, you know, they, they, they kept telling stories. They were full of energy, full of light. And we all kept, we stopped everything and just sat with them and listened to them. And then I realized that both of them were great. And I, I found myself a little bit confused because I have never done that. And we rarely do that in Lebanon. I know that it's very practical to hire twins for a role of a kid, but that was never the plan. So, but because both of them were so interesting to me, I thought, well, I'm not gonna make a choice. Sayana, one of them 
feels like this old soul trapped in the body of a seven-year-old. And Jeanna feels like a person that's completely in touch with her freedom, her body, her masculine side as well. And those are both things that belong to the character. So I very naturally divided the script between their personalities and I didn't intellectualize that at all. And it just felt very natural and it happened in a very natural way. And on top of that, it was extremely practical because I could shoot more. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that that kind of came like a ring to the, the finger, like we say. Um, uh, it, you know, you, you of course cannot tell. Uh, they're, they're, they look exactly the same. And I, as I said, there's, there's this, uh, this emotional continuity throughout. I think you did a great job. Um, I think the emotional continuity was there because they were both in touch with the character. So they found themselves in the same place as the character. Nice. Um, how many shoot days did you have? And did you do any reshoots? Uh, we had, uh, I think 35 or 36 days of shoot. And I had a secret day of reshoot that I did without telling anyone where I reshot the ending. Oh, how does that work? How can you do that? <laughs> you know, when we were kids and our parents told us not to do something, we found creative ways to do it. What happened to me is that I, I knew there was no money left to do any reshoot. I knew and I had a lot of compassion for, for what my producers had gone through. And I knew that they, if they could, they would. But then when I was editing in Barcelona, uh, in, initially the movie ended in the revolution, in the protests, but, but they, that moment uh, of, you know, in my kind of like mind and heart, I felt like this ending would feel too naive because that was no longer where I was in, in my, I felt like it would be a dishonest ending. And I felt like the movie should end with the character we started with and the rest should be off screen. And so the movie ended in this two shot of them in the car. And I had got ridden of the other ending we had shot. But then when we had locked the cut and already the post process was very fast, which didn't allow me for a lot of time and perspective, which of course I regret and I've learned from. Uh, and so what happened is that when we went back to Barcelona for the grading, I was with the cinematographer and I watched the film once it was graded. And of course the colors and, and the, 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 the grain um, gave a whole other meaning to the film because it was starting to look how I had imagined it, you know? I mean, getting closer to the certain, you know, uh, dustiness that starts pervading in the end and all of that. So that put me in, in a certain state of mind that it allowed me to gain perspective. And I told Joe, the DP, ah, I just wish that we can end on Reem's face, you know, like we're just with her as the car drives and drives and drives towards the unknown. And suddenly we hear the voice of her mother as she's heading to Beirut and we're trapped in this car with her as she's wondering if it's better to give up or not. And, 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 and she's developing this fear and excitement about the world she's about to enter, which is the one that she's been protected from. And I told him this and I said, it would be just one shot of her. And I described the shot. And then Joe, my DP, who's like, let's just do it. And I'm like, how? Like, there's no way, and we locked the cut. There's no way the producers would, you know. And he said, well, I can call Pauline. Pauline is, is 
a person who was his assistant for a very long time, who was also a GP, who was really talented. He said, you, you FaceTime every two days with the twins. You're practically their aunt now. Like you can ask their mom, who's also your friend, if you know she can do that. I can ask my, my brother to go with the car to their house and you can talk to Beatrice and Larry who are in the costume department and they can just drop the costume. And I said, oh, but what about her? The, the bangs because they didn't have bangs we cut them I said well we'll just ask the mom if she's willing to cut it again and so I did all of that we called Pauline we called everyone and everyone said yes so we did a zoom call where we were basically me and Joe in Barcelona uh, he was directing Pauline I was directing the kid and and his brother was driving the car and we just we just got the camera from someone who gave it to us for free uh, because they you know, they understood what we were doing and we did it. And then there was like two hours of shoot. And then I put it in the cut and send it to the producers. <laughs> They're like, why did you never use this? That's just a great shot. It's a much better ending. And I told them and everyone was like, well, glad you didn't tell us. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's such a great story. Um, that That is great. Uh, I, I hope that that kind of spirit is actually something you can carry throughout as you make all your films that those are the things that um that that really like make you a resourceful filmmaker um cinematography your dp you work with the joint before uh uh on on previous films and um i i just think that the language and the use of light and and space in this film is really beautiful uh and you're able to incorporate those magical realism elements in a way that is that is very subtle and organic. And um, I just wanted uh, you to tell us a little bit about your collaboration to make the language of this film uh, and, and how your, your background as, a, as an architect it has influenced this, if it has. Yes. Um, so Joe and I worked together on Submarine for the first time and you know, Submarine was such an important chapter, I think, in my filmmaking journey because of the team I made it with um, that were, the, you know, a mix between friends from New York, but also mostly a Lebanese team that I had started with when I was younger, uh, like Jinan and, and, and yeah, et cetera. And so basically, I, I felt like, thanks to Joe, I was this, able to discover a certain aspect of myself as a filmmaker. And it was very important for me um, that he would be part of the journey of the feature because the feature was connected to that short. And so him and I kind of understood each other without having to speak much. And um, he became uh, not just like the cinematographer of the film, but my, my guardian angel, actually. Like he was the person that I felt when everyone was so busy with their own thing and, and struggling because people were struggling while we were making this film because of everything that was happening. I felt like he became a pillar for me uh, on a human level and that I'm very grateful for. Uh, and so the way we thought about the moments of magical realism was how can we incorporate them in a way that feels seamless like we did in Submarine where you wonder as an audience, is that actually happening or is that a moment that steps away from reality because uh, I think when we daydream as human beings or where we have uh, 
dreams or imagination, there's no real separation between the moment of the dream and the moment of reality. They're merged, you know, I can be in this room and, and escape elsewhere, but I, I wanted to blur the lines between past, present, uh, subjectivity, reality. So that's why we kind of like conceptualize them in a way that the transition from reality to dream was seamless. Um, and in terms of the space, I think we designed I designed the house before designing the anything else because I wanted to tell the story of these characters through the spaces and the house actually each um, with uh, Isa and Thomas and Hanadi who did the production designer and with Beatrice who designed the costumes, we really uh, associated every element of the wardrobe or of the house with a character. You know, even for example, with the costumes, we thought this is a family that um, is living isolation in isolation from the world. It's been eight years. So obviously they don't go shopping anymore. And also Reem is obsessed with her father. So we, we created the system in which they rotate clothes and the kid often wears her father's clothes. But then by the end of the film, the father even wears his wife's shirt. And, and then by the end of the film, the teenager who's obsessing with her mom starts. So it was like a rotating wardrobe that was establishing them as uh, characters who have this circular economy, but also who are drawn and the lack of communication and the communication with each other. So basically for me, what architecture school allowed me to understand is that every line you draw defines relationships in society. Every wall means something, whether it's in urban planning or in architecture. And you can basically tell uh, an audience everything about a character with no dialogue, with just a space that surrounds them. When you have a character in a space, you can understand who he is through that space, through the objects that surround him, through the colors that surround him, through the weather. And so that's what architecture school gave me. It made me aware that both architecture and cinema are like a mise-en-scene of life. And so how can I um, really like um, give information about the story and the character through the walls that surround those characters. And in fact, that's how we structured the whole invasion as well. We thought in the beginning of the film, we feel like everything is open, colorful in harmony, they're in harmony with nature. Later, it's a feeling of an open air prison where the blue and the dust of the garbage takes over and the spaces become tighter. And a lot of people told me that by the middle of the film, they really felt like it smelled bad and they were trapped. And I think that's partly because of that. Um, so yeah. Um, we've discussed a lot about uh, different challenges of you know the, the the space where you where you where you film, which is Lebanon after the explosion and, and how that affected the production. Uh, can you can you please tell us if there was a specific obstacle for you as a female director making this feature? And if so, how did you overcome it? Um, on set, I would say that luckily, um, a lot of the people that compose, that, are, that, that the Lebanese film industry is made of are people who, you know, are, are 
against that system, which is the, the one of the patriarchy. And so I, I feel lucky that a lot of the men that I've worked with and the women that I've worked with in the film industry in Lebanon are people who are um, fighting against a certain system that is the one that um, uh, took away so many rights or never gave any rights to women. So that's one thing I would say. However, later um, in other areas, I was able to understand on a personal level how much that system is ingrained into everything, even in certain women, uh, not just men, and, and both women and men are, are victims of it. And so there were obstacles. Yes, I, I do feel like later after the shoot, I understood how certain men can be really harmful and, and that we got so used to certain things that we don't realize it until we had time to process it. Um, but I do feel like, um, I feel supported by uh, women and men in the community that are fighting against that. So it's kind of like a push and pull um, uh, between those energies. And I don't know, ultimately things will change, um, uh, but, I think that the obstacles that are related to that, I didn't feel them while I was making the shoot, no. It's not there that I felt them because of what I told you about the film industry. And also the obstacles were so larger than life around that time. We were dealing with the grief and the loss of a country uh, because of a corrupt uh, criminal political class that's holding Lebanese people hostage. So somehow like, and of course the pandemic, the economic collapse. So all of these things kind of really brought the team in a place where we all shared a similar pain. And so that was our common obstacle together. And of course, the fact that when, like in the movie, when you're put under pressure, which is what we were all put under, then every person is very vulnerable. So, and that's sometimes overwhelming because everyone around you is hypersensitive, including yourself. And other times it's very human. So, what was your favorite moment during the shoot? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's there's not one great moment, just a lot of sweet little moments, you know, with um, seeing, for example, the mother of the twins behind the monitor with me really moved to see something in her children she didn't know existed. I don't know, that moved me quite a lot, but also just being behind the monitor and, and seeing those characters that I have dreamt about for so long come to life, that was, it's always special, like I'm like, it, child you know like behind the monitor when I see an image come to life it's it, it's so powerful uh a lot of little sweet moments I think but there's not one um specific one well that that little piece that you just shared about the mom and the twins is, is beautiful um if and that's my baby which you'll meet soon um I know you've already shared with us a lot of things you've learned through the production, but if there was just one thing that you could have advised yourself right before starting this shoot, like just one thing that would have made it all 
better or easier, uh, what would that be? To take one month off, completely off from the world and dive into just watching movies, reading books, uh, discussing with the cinematographer, disconnected from everything else, not just the cinematographer, with the artistic team. Try to isolate with the artistic team so that every idea has been thought of and, and is not rushed and is really rooted in something deep. Give yourself space and time and silence to prepare. But also um, my biggest regret is not to have spent more time in between edits. I would have loved to edit for two months, stop for a month, continue edit, edit. Um, you know, like rushing the post process made me aware of how much I need time to digest certain things. And, and I think it, it would have been great for me to offer myself these times where I can regain perspective before finalizing something. All right. Um, so to finish, I just wanted to ask what's next for you? What are you working on? I'm working on a, on a script, um, a feature film script uh, that is set uh, in uh, partly in the US. And I'm also developing a TV show that's at, at the early stage. And in parallel of that, I've been uh, meeting, so I've been reading scripts, whether it's TV uh, or feature that have been being sent to me. It's always harder to find something that your heart uh, be beats to when you have specific, uh, you know, themes and subjects you want to explore. But I've been on the lookout for books, uh, 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 scripts, I'm kind of like in this sponge phase again, where I want to watch things, read things, meet people. And so this is what I've been doing. But what um, the story that's been burning the most in my stomach right now is the one of the second feature. And so um, I want to give myself time to get to it. All right. Well, um, I cannot wait to see that second feature. Uh, Thank you again so much, Munya, for talking to us this morning. Uh, I've learned a lot. I'm sure people are going to find this very, very helpful. And uh, I wish you all the success with all of your projects always. And um, yeah, uh, for everybody, uh, Costa Brava Lebanon is still on the festival circuit. Uh, where is it going to be shown next? Um, in San Francisco, end of April, April 24th and 29th. In Spain, May 30th in Barcelona. Uh, and in France, it's coming out in cinemas in June, end of June. And then we'll see for the rest. I'll let okay. you know. <laughs> exciting, exciting. Uh, we'll, we'll have all the information of the film uh, on the web so you can, you can follow it and hopefully you can catch it somewhere. It's really magic. Thanks again, Munya. Thank you, Thais. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and um, check the description of the podcast where you can find the address for the website of the blog. And there you will find all the links and information that we discussed on this interview. See you next time.